Welcome to PodPod. I'm Rihanna Dillon and I'm joined this week by Reem Makari, PodPod journalist and researcher, and Adam Shepard, editor of PodPod. Hi guys. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you guys doing? Good. Good. So obviously, this is the podcast all about podcasting for podcasters. And it's a week in which we've just had the Arias, which is always a huge deal in radio, but Mm. for podcasters as well. So tell us what's been going on. Who won? So one of the biggest highlights for podcasting on that night, which by the way, was a very long (laughs) night. Oh, was it? Were you there? I was. Yes. First time attending the Arias. Very long, but very interesting, very cool people. But a big podcast highlight was the fact that from BBC Sounds Audio Lab, Coloring in Britain, won Best New Podcast. Mm -hmm. And for the speech, Tommy and Khalid, the commissioning exec for Audio Labs, they went to accept the award and Tommy was giving the speech and he was like, he didn't prepare anything because he didn't expect to win. Mm-hmm. at all because it's yes it, it is a BBC podcast but it is coming from an independent creator who literally just was mentored mm. and and started this project on their own and it's a very important project and in fact he was so not expecting to win that uh, so it was at the Theatre Royal in Drury Lane all of the nominees are meant to be seated down in the stalls <laughs> so that if their name's called they can get up mm-hmm. to the stage easily we as non-nominees were seated up right in the nosebleeds yeah. right the at the, the yeah. back in the circle yeah and when they called out uh, Colouring in Britain as the winner of the Gold Award for that category we actually saw Tommy stand up like three rows in front of us oh, and wow. left <laughs> it down oh, through the entire theatre. The, oh, the presenters God. were on stage like looking around oh, the theatre no. for him. Oh. oh, poor guy. But it was a very happy moment. Yeah, I mean, it was up against Ukraine cast, Betwixt the Sheets, mm. Talk Sport, Prison Radio, BBC Big Scotland. Names. Yeah, they were, that was a very competitive category. And also what I find really interesting about this year's Arias is the fact that in categories where there was a mix of radio and podcasts, often the podcasts won, right? Yeah, the podcast did, I'm going to say without crunching the numbers, I think at least as well for wins as the radio shows did in the kind of mixed categories, which is really interesting. I have to admit, I wasn't expecting it to be quite that balanced. And I think it really shows how seriously podcasting is is being taken by the overall audio industry. Mm. So our interview this week is with Ben Ewart, who is head of podcasting at Immediate Media. And they, they cover an awful lot of podcasts, including BBC Good Food, BBC History Extra, the Radio Times podcast. Adam, Immediate Media is what exactly? So Immediate Media is a publishing company. Uh, They're not actually affiliated with the BBC. The BBC sold off a number of its magazine brands to Immediate Media some years ago. So it operates these brands under the BBC name, but independent of the corporation. Right. So we're going to go into all sorts with Ben, including how to run a publisher podcast network and how he works with all of these brands and encourages them in certain ways and supports them, of course, as well. So here is Ben Hewitt talking to me and Adam all about publisher podcasts. (laughs) 
Ben Hewitt. Welcome to PodPod. Hello. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. We were kind of congratulating ourselves the other day for winning an award at the Publisher Podcast Awards. You won two. Immediate Media won two. So extra <laughs> round of applause for that. Congratulations. Oh, thank you very much. A history extra round of applause, Oof. if you will. Oh, nice. <laughs> the puns have started. <laughs> uh, yeah, we got we got two awards, which is really great. We picked up one for History Extra. We picked up one for BBC Good Food. So yeah, it was a good start to award season. There's a couple more on the horizon, so fingers crossed. But yeah, yeah I'm sure we'll be week. seeing you again. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, so your title is Head of Podcasting at Immediate Media, which is an incredible title. I've got to be honest. It's a very cool one. What does it actually mean? What does it actually encompass at Immediate? Yeah, I suppose it's a bit it's a bit fancy, really, isn't it? <laughs> well, so head of podcast at Media Media. Ten years ago, if you were to look at, at Media Media, you would see it as probably a very traditional publishing company, a magazine publishing company. A lot of people listening in are probably familiar with a lot of our brands, especially in the UK. We've got brands like Radio Times, we've got brands like History Extra, BBC Good Food, Gardener's World, you know, a giant host of other magazines, and and you know, we really cover a lot of different areas and a lot of different spaces. So I suppose my job as head of podcast is to try and work as a central department that sort of introduces podcasting as a medium, as a tool for those heritage brands to be able to use audio, to reach out to new users, to create new content types, to tell maybe not completely new stories, but tell stories in a new way that reach users and and sort of create a sense of investment and engagement. And then hopefully try and make a business out of it at the same time. So my job is really to sit centrally and pull together the different aspects of what that involves, whether it be marketing or sales strategy, working between the editorial teams and the production teams. And just generally, I'm sort of just, I don't really, I'm a master of nothing, (laughs) but I I work with a lot of other people who are masters of of various fields. I'm sure that's not true. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm humble to a fault, but yeah, I do my best. I do my best to coordinate (laughs) other people. So how many podcasts does Immedia operate in total? It sometimes fluctuates because of seasonality and so on, but at any Mm. given point, we're usually producing between 12 and 15 shows in a given month. Wow. It's a lot. And it can, uh, when I first started, which was nearly five years ago, we were doing about five episodes a week across about four or five brands. And now we're doing 15 shows, 15 different brands, and about 30, 35 episodes a week. So it's, uh, it's expanded massively in the last couple of years. What are kind of some of those early strategies that you have when a brand approaches you and they say, you know, we want to expand into podcasting? Of course, that would depend on who the brand is and what they do, what they offer. But I think especially for some, it's about trying to get older people who are perhaps fans of certain things involved in the podcasting, younger people who maybe don't use physical media in quite the same way. Yeah, tell us about those strategies. That's actually the really fun part of my job is to be able to talk to different brands because I get a really privileged perspective being a central team member. I don't sit on History Extra. I don't sit on Radio Times. So in that way, we get to work with the entire immediate company. If they choose to have a podcast, we get to sit in and sort of be an ad hoc member of that team. And that feels really great to have that that wide range and that experience. But what you learn pretty quickly is that different brands are in it for completely different reasons. So the first thing we do 
is try and ask them why, <laughs> which might sound really simple, but it's often the thing that stumps a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And it's often the thing that you, when, you, when you actually get under the hood and you figure out why, sometimes the idea they may have started with ends up being completely different when you actually hammer out a strategy around why are you trying to do this. For example, History Extra was a show that was already running for about 10 years before I joined the company. It's been running for about 15 years now. Mm. It already had a massive following, not as big as it is now, but it was sort of doing well over a million listens a month at that point, and it was growing and growing and growing. And their objective was at that point in time when I first joined, right, how do we take this show that's already very successful and make it commercially viable? Let's look at the ways that this can help us boost some of the awareness around our other products, like our magazine, our web subscription. And those agendas have basically still stayed with us, but we've gotten a lot better at actually actioning a lot of those strategies. But other brands coming into it brand new, like Good Food, which have been going for a couple of years, Radio Times, for them, it's not about having this existing business. It's about starting something fresh. And that's really exciting for us. Being able to sit down with a brand like Radio Times and say, okay, well, Radio Times is typically known for having an older readership. It's typically known for sort of TV and terrestrial TV at that. So how do we take a digital medium and help them really get who they are out to a new younger audience? And that's what the brand have wanted to do with the strategy behind the show. And that's what we try and do with our marketing, with our use of social channels, with our choice of guests, with our choice of hosts. And that is really fun, sort of being able to build this architecture of what they're trying to drive at and the way you treat the show to achieve those objectives. That's that's really great. If somebody doesn't have the right why, would you sort of advise not moving forward with a podcast or at least putting that idea on hold for a little while? We would normally not onboard a project unless various parties were happy with it. So being a big publisher, it means you've got a lot of stakeholders, which can also make things move slower than maybe independents are able to, which is sometimes a struggle, but often a fun challenge to try and get everyone enthusiastic about stuff. So for example, if we're doing a strategy that is aimed at making money, but there's something that doesn't work, Mm -hmm. there will be a senior sales stakeholder that has to advise on it and there will be a sense check. Same for a marketing approach. If we're trying to reach a younger audience, but our hosts are maybe very, you know, mature and the format is more akin to an older audience, then it doesn't line up. So it wouldn't. I don't think we're in danger of starting to onboard projects that don't fit the brief that they've set out for themselves. But yeah, I think it makes it harder because it just means that brands aren't really in the world of podcasting. They don't understand how subtle changes to the voice of it, the format of it, the length of it, the person you put in front of audiences, all of those things which to a podcasting publisher or to you know, a producer would just know it straight away. Sometimes you have to work a little bit harder to build that understanding. But yeah, I think typically if we did get an idea that was really off brief, we would just work with the brand and try and get them to think about those things for themselves. I'm curious about how Immediate first got into podcasting in a really sort of strategic way. So you mentioned History Extra, which was, I think it's fair to say, an early pioneer in terms of publisher podcasts or rather editorial brand-driven podcasts. But Immediate as an organization hasn't been investing in podcasting on an organizational level for quite as long as that, right? How did the organization first decide to start really backing podcasting as a main pillar? Hmm. 
That's a good question. I think I should give full credit at this point to Dave Musgrove, who is the content director of BBC History Magazine, who established the History Extra podcast 15 years ago. And at the time, they were just doing one episode a month. It was normally two interviews back together, back to back. If you go back to our very first interviews on the feed, you'll see it. And the production quality isn't as good as it is now. And we obviously release episodes daily now. So there's a lot of learnings from 2007 to where we are now. Because it initially started as an archival thing, right? It was interviews that they'd done, you know, for the magazine that they were just like, well, we've got these recorded anyway. We might as well do something with them. That's completely bang on. And I think it just became one of those conversations that the editorial team would basically have around a Monday morning planning session. And they say, are you talking to so-and-so next week? And they say, yeah, I'm doing that. Well, we're trying to do this podcast thing. Can you take a microphone? Can you take a dictaphone? Can you see what we can get? And it started slow and it, there was no targets in mind. There was no sort of, this is the objective. Certainly back then when podcasting was only for a select few publishers, you know, maybe not even, not even five or six major publishers in the UK were doing anything around podcasting. So they really were a pioneer. That's the right word for it. Mm. And they were there with the likes of the Ricky Gervais podcast, you know, one of the first big British podcasters to really accept the medium and, and run with it. So that started out of just wanting to play around with it as a format. It was cost effective. They were doing the work anyway. They were just going to use the transcripts that they were doing. And yeah, it was just something they could bolt on. So that was where they started. Now, cut forward maybe 10 years when my predecessor was here, when I took over and, and started running the team. That's when, as a company, they started saying, okay, well, there's all this engagement in history. We've got these other shows. We want to try and make them into successful standalone products on their own. We can't just sort of you know, tape everything to history and let that be the main front runner, the flagship. We need these other shows to try and build. And that's what we're doing now. Granted, none of them are as big as history actually yet, and it's still our flagship, but we've got aspirations for the rest of the portfolio and it is growing nicely. And, you know, we are making strides, which I'm happy about. But yeah, I think it was basically about four years ago or maybe three and a half years ago when history really started to make money of its podcast, which changed a lot of attitudes internally around, okay, this is it, this actually is a viable form mm -hmm. of income. It's not just eyeballs or people listening. It's actually something that can be commercialized. And I think that's largely to do with market trend as well. You know, the way that listen through models work, the way that ad tech works, the way with sponsorship works, it's just getting more and more sophisticated. And often if you're a publisher, you can't take full advantage of the commercial models around podcasting because they're a lot more suited to independents who do horse-tread endorsements, who do bespoke episodes, who get brand ambassadors on to have a chat about different products. And there is that intimacy around a, a product recommendation, which of course we can't do because we're BBC. So I think even with all those restrictions, the ad tech and the, the market has basically caught up with where we with our earlier success. And that had a huge impact in terms of our, our leadership team and our internal management saying, right, this is a viable commercial strategy as well as being an interesting medium. Let's invest and get some other shows in the in the running. So what kind of revenue models have you been exploring with your podcast? And do you approach them all in a similar way? So that is, again, very similar to the way that we will tailor a brief to suit the brand's needs around the why. So you know, what kind of content you create and what kind of audience you're going after. The commercial strategy often plays in the same way. We know if you're starting a brand new show from scratch, you probably shouldn't expect to have a million listens in your first month, you know, your first run. That would be incredibly ambitious and it would be a huge success. We'd love that, but it, you know, it doesn't typically happen. 
So for that, you know, you do want to tailor your commercial models after going after specific clients or having sponsorship, which is a bit more high value rather than generic ads, which uh, have a lower CPM rate. So you have to serve a lot more skill to be effective serving ads rather than sponsorship. Sometimes just timing, releasing a, a series when it's when it's timely. You know, you wouldn't release maybe an entertainment series in the middle of summer compared to, you know, that market explodes around winter and around Christmas, streaming services and so on, put a lot more money into the market in the lead up to Christmas. So just things like that, things that you would be a common sense strategy of when are you doing it? What type of show is it? What are the clients that are in that arena? Who can we reach out to? And, and how can we make this package more appealing to, to the people who want to be aligned with our brands? Mm. One of the interesting approaches that we've seen in this space is Tortoise, who, like yourselves, are a an editorial publisher. Uh, they have a membership-based model, but they also do podcast-specific subscriptions through Apple's tooling alongside using podcasts as a wider brand-level subscriptions, revenue tool, and selling ads and partnerships on the podcast themselves. Hmm. Have you explored using podcast-specific subscription models with some of your shows? Yes, we have. So again, I feel like we're just talking about history all the time, but history. <laughs> so about two years ago, with Apple Podcast Subscriptions and their service, we released a channel called History Extra hmm. Plus. It has a number of benefits for subscribers. It's been running for two years. It's growing steadily, and it's becoming a more and more interesting part of what we're doing for users. What it basically offers is an ad-free experience. So if people want a completely ad-free listening experience, you sign up, you'll never get an ad ever again as long as you listen on that platform. We also release early access special series. So in April, we released uh, Six Wives, which was a six-part sort of, sort of slightly more Radio 4 approach to, you know, instead of our regular History Extra podcast, which is a one-on-one -on -one interview for, say, 40 minutes with one historian on one topic... It's a more docudrama approach where there's multiple voices, a narrative thread that ties each episode together, a lot more music sound effects. So it's a bit more of a higher production value. So we'll release that in bulk on Apple Podcasts, on History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts. Users will get that ad-free and early access for maybe two months or three months. And then later that will be released for free on the free feed, but that will be one a week. So it's, it's more of an incentive for people to sign up if you really want to get into that series and you really want to consume it in one go and binge it and so on. But what it also does is it allows us the ability to create individual feeds for curated collections. So if you're a really big history fan, you've got a Tudor's collection, a Roman's collection, a Viking's collection, and it just is a really easy way for us to curate and tailor your experience as a history fan. So if you do take out History Extra Plus subscription, all of that stuff is just put into nice, easy buckets for you to just go where you want to go. So there's a number of benefits to it as well, as well as bonus content that's exclusively behind the paywall, which you can't get anywhere else, except the History Extra website and app, which also has a, a subscription offering for it. So if you went to the History Extra website, you'd be able to look at a couple of pages and then you'd be asked to sign up and all of the podcast benefits we have on Apple are also on the website and the app. So is there a reason why you wouldn't roll that out across certain other podcasts that it just wouldn't suit? I think, to be completely candid about it, we want to make sure that we've grown our audience size to a substantial user base. The sort of top of funnel is looking very substantial and robust. Which is without what, throwing, by the way, like roughly? Well, it, it'd be hard to put a specific number on it because I think for different brands, you could have 
a very small but highly engaged audience. You know, things around news or things around sports or things about celebrity. You know, you, you, you can see it already on channels like YouTube or like Patreon. People are willing to pay $10, $15 a month for an exclusive membership to someone they deeply care about. Mm. So as a business, if you only had, you know, 5,000 people sign up, that's a substantial amount of revenue every month. So you wouldn't need a million users. Mm-hmm. You know, you could do it with a core group of four or 5,000 subscribers. And as long as you provide a great product that people are happy to continue consuming, that's a real business. You know, I remember going to the pod show in London last year and talking to the guys from Red Handed or, or watching their show as mm-hmm. well. Mm. And they were talking about their subscription offer. And it's all of that. You know, it's all about how do you drive huge engagement? You don't need a massive audience to really make yes. a successful business out of it. That puts the pressure on a publisher to really get a mainstream audience in in the first place. Mm. You know, for, for a brand like Gardner's World, who is doing really well in our portfolio, they've got a you know, a huge amount of listens every month. We're moving into summer and spring now. And, you know, they've got a lot of listens, but that doesn't necessarily mean they've got hundreds of thousands of users mm. tuning in. And you would need a substantial amount of users at the top of funnel who are willing to consume the content for free before you can funnel those people down into your subscriber base. And, and typically, if you've got more than 10% of your user base converted into a subscription rate, that's well above the industry average. 10% of your overall user base to pay money is massive. You know, you'd really have to struggle hard to be able to do that. So depends how big the size of the prize is when you start before you can finish. And a lot of our brands just simply aren't at that scale yet. So that's why we focus the history just for now. Speaking of audience growth and growing that initial kind of listener base, how do you approach that in terms of your user acquisition strategy, if you like? Do you cross-advertise different podcasts across the network? How do you work the print side into things? What's the what's the game plan? I'll be honest, we our game plan is to sort of do all of it and <laughs> push every lever just a little bit and see which brand has the biggest impact on which channel. So on history, mm. we have a really great success rate with newsletters. On different channels, we have a great, really great success rate on you know Twitter, not Facebook. And then you go to a different brand and it's Facebook, not Twitter. So you, you never really know what's going to engage with a podcast audience for that specific brand until you do it. Mm. But for us, we will do always do all of it. I think it's a responsibility as a publisher. If you pick up a magazine, at some point in that magazine, whether it's Radio Times or Gardener's World or Country File or any of our brands, you will see a QR code and a mention about the podcast that month and a benefit. If you go on our social media channel, especially if it's a podcast that's in season, you will see a, a, a tweet or a promo video or a short extract or on YouTube, you'll see a playlist of selected clips. You know, we want to be as visible as possible on as many touch points. And that's the that's the thing about podcast marketing. Some people just like the playlist videos on YouTube. <laughs> to them, that's where that's that's how they view a podcast. It's not actually mm. listening to it without the visuals. Some people just like the funny clips that they see on reels. And that's okay mm. too. So I would encourage publishers out there not to see that as some sort of big defeat that you haven't been able to pipeline those people through to this other listening platform or this other way of consuming it. To some people, that's their favorite thing about the podcast, the social mm. media content, the YouTube content, whatever it might be. That's where that's where the most value is for them. So to see success in different metrics across different brands is, is a big thing we encourage. But yeah, basically we do all of it. And when we get some data back, when we know what's working for one brand A versus brand B, then 
over the next iteration, maybe it's quarterly, maybe it's monthly, we'll just sort of keep an eye on it and then we'll tailor our approach so we're not wasting too much time or effort on channels that aren't really resonating. And then we'll double down on the channels that are. So it's, yeah, it's a lot of time. <laughs> it's a lot of time just <laughs> testing stuff. And sometimes your instincts are right and sometimes you're really surprised and your instincts are way off. So you, you got to do the work. Do you have an example of that, of where your instinct was perhaps wrong? Well, a good example is actually video for History Extra. Mm -hmm. So most of our brands have experimented with long-form podcast video at one point or another. We've done it recently with Top Gear. We've done it with Radio Times. And it normally gets good engagement, but the drop-off is quite short. So basically, people listen to seven, eight minutes, and then they think, well, I haven't got time to listen to 45 minutes. You know, watch 45 minutes of this video just sat on my laptop. I, you know, I like to be on the go. I like to consume different things. There's a different user behavior around that. But with history, audiences, maybe it's because it's a history audience, maybe because of the age demographic, the geographic demographic, you know, for whatever magical reason, the video around history massively bucks trend. You know, the videos that are an hour long or an hour plus, where it's just a historian talking about a set subject, do really, really well. So it could just mm -hmm. be the content type. It could be this, it could be that. Mm -hmm. But that goes against everything we see on every other brand. So you, you never know. <laughs> we, went in, we went into that conversation and just said, look, guys, this may not work. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we've, we've seen it elsewhere. You can try it if you want. You know, we, we sort of thought, you know, thought we knew it all. Play it down. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, we're happy to be proved wrong because that's, you know, we have to be data-led and you have to be impartial and you just have to realize that every brand has their own little nuances. And, and yeah, that's, that's the fun part of it. It's like, we, we, you don't know what you're going to know next. And with that sort of network that you've built up, are you able to, in the same way that the BBC does, I suppose, do you sort of cross-pollinate with your advertising, with your different podcasts? Yeah, definitely. I mean, Christmas is a great example because a lot of our brands are based around Christmas. A lot of our other brands are based around spring. So when there are, you know, we might do historical Christmas foods and that crosses over great with good food and olive, mm -hmm. or we might, mm -hmm. you know, we had Jamie Oliver on the Radio Times podcast, and that was just a really great natural crossover with BBC Good Food with Tom Carriage. So when there are opportunities that we think users are going to appreciate, we do it. You know, we wouldn't necessarily just do one completely out of the blue, unless maybe there was a big campaign around a new series or a new launch or something like that, that might be different. But typically, if there's a really great content crossover and we think users are going to get the benefit of that that exposure, yeah, we, we always do our best to sort of nurture the relationships between our brands. And it's always worked really well for us. Do you actually see growth with that, with listener growth? It's not necessarily that the numbers would double on both podcasts overnight. I think that would be if people out there think, oh, if we just team up with this person, we're going to steal all their listeners. And then, you know, <laughs> what you mean? That's, that's not, not how you do it. It's never quite that simple, sadly. <laughs> yeah. I wish. Uh, but no, it, it doesn't work quite like that. But what you do get is maybe an initial bump, you know, five, 10% or something compared to what you'd normally get. That's never scoffed at. But what you get is long term continuation. So the next week might be slightly higher. The week after that might be slightly higher again. Podcasts, in our experience, are a long, slow, steady, organic growth model. You know, you may do one episode with a particular talent. They tweet about it. They put it on their social media and they get this huge surge. And you think, oh, great, this is it. And then next week, the next talent you get on doesn't do that. And the numbers go straight back to where they were before. So those moments happen as well. Key promotion on the major platforms, on Apple, on Spotify, on Amazon, is something that we focus on. We do our best to make sure that all of our submissions are airtight, that the artwork looks as good as possible, that it's as relevant as possible to the current discussion. You know, you don't want to put out something that's super serious 
that's maybe around Christmas. You don't want to put out something that is, you know, really fun and sort of a comedy podcast when there's something very serious going on. Or maybe you do. Maybe that's, you know, maybe that's exactly what people need. <laughs> but you try and pick your moments. You know, the coronation, huge royal event, great for history. Summer, great for barbecues. So if good food comes into it, great for gardening. Gardeners will come in. So it's just about, again, common sense marketing. When is this going to have the biggest impact on the biggest audience that are going to be interested in this, whether they're on the periphery or they're a hardcore fan, pick your right time to strike. Make sure the artwork looks brilliant. Make sure the copy's great. Make sure the guest is great. Make sure the production standards are great. So it's a lot of just doing the basics really well and trying to be as consistent as possible. How do you kind of talk about patience in podcasting? Because as you say, things aren't an overnight success. So if something is kind of steadily doing well and kind of growing and growing, and a brand is saying, actually, it's not growing fast enough. We need to change it up. At which point do you say, no, no, let's keep it at this because it's a good thing. Or, yeah, you're right. We need something that's a bit more sort of flashy. That is such a common conversation that happens. And it's such a concerning conversation when it does happen because part of you just wants people to stay on track and have that type of consistency. The thing we would probably say to a publisher if they came in and they said, look, the numbers have been consistent for two or three months. We don't seem to be growing. We've kind of hit a plateau, which happens regularly. And they're concerned about it and they want to dramatically change the show because they want to do something to give it a bit of a shot in the arm. What we would typically say is that we'd look at the numbers and if they're doing you know, quite well, we'd say, well, look, it's not the end of the world. But if they're doing small amount of listeners, I, I'd have a certain amount of sympathy for that. And this sort of, there is an aspect of what have you got to lose? There's not that many people tuning in. Let's see if we can improve this. So I, you'd, you'd have to appreciate it within context. But a, a big part of what we would say to publishers is say, well, what are you trying to achieve? Because if you are trying to make a million people listening and you're not doing it, then why aren't you doing it? Is it because the production standards aren't up to scratch and people listen to 30 seconds and it sounds echoey and it doesn't sound like it's been produced very well? We can fix that. So let's not abandon the show you've got. Let's just look at the problem that you're facing and deal with it that way. But sometimes brands do change their show when patients would probably be a better approach and people go, right, we're going to change the host. We're going to change the format. We're going to change the artwork. And then you end up with this identity crisis because they don't start a new feed you know, they don't start a new show from scratch and try and create a new piece of creative that has its own identity and everything else. You kind of annoy your audience that's already there who have grown to know and, and appreciate and, you know, get on with the horse and they like the frequency and they like, you know, this part of their week. And now they're having to put up with something else that feels different, has different voices, and it's just not the same product. So I'd encourage brands, if you're going to do that, or if, you, if you're in a similar position, if anyone listening to this is in a similar position, Think about it from a creative perspective. What is it you're trying to make? What feeling do you want your user to have when they're listening in? Is it a comedy podcast? Is it a news podcast? What are you trying to serve? Because it might be you already have a really great product, but your marketing isn't right, or your production standard isn't right, or it goes out the wrong day, or it doesn't do well on social. If that's happening, before you really scrap it, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater kind of stuff. Just examine everything you're doing first, because if you've got to the stage where you've onboarded it and you've done that correctly, you should already have a really brilliant show. You shouldn't be doing a show that isn't well thought out. So we've mentioned Apple a couple of times already. One thing I wanted to dig into is Spotify, because you recently, you guys announced a partnership with Megaphone 
to handle your hosting and monetization and all of that good stuff. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what the motivations were behind that change and whether or not you've started to see any benefits from the partnership yet. Definitely. Well, I think that the thing I should say, first of all, is that we've always had a really great relationship with our previous provider and it wasn't like something really nasty had gone down and we were trying to change what we were doing. Um, we'd always had a really great relationship there and that provider had helped us grow both commercially and in terms of our audience reach. And you know, we had a really great thing going on for a number of years, but we went into a contract negotiation. We looked at other partners who were available and naturally we ended up talking to Spotify as well. And after we started talking to them, we saw that it was a very compelling partnership for us. We had gotten to a point as a publisher where we wanted to try some new things and we wanted to expand into different areas. We wanted to look at the way that we were commercializing our podcast in a number of different regions, which is something that Spotify and Megaphone were particularly strong at, which we'd like the look of. And of course, from an audience development standpoint, you know, Spotify owns such a massive market share of global podcast listeners, and that hasn't typically been reflected in our user demographic. The, you know, the majority of our users have always historically listened on Apple Podcasts. So for us, it was an interesting partnership to see how we could grow both commercially and both in terms of audience development. And yeah, we went through about a 16-month consultation Oof. period <laughs> where we had to work out the agreements and, and talk to various different people, not just you know one provider, but we, you know, we really looked into the market and did our homework on this. And we just thought that moving forward, the agreement that we've now got with Megaphone and Spotify really does suits us as, as best as any agreement could, and we're very happy with it. And uh, it has only been live for a couple of months. Yeah, it's early days at it's the moment. It's very early days, but we're not this happy at all. Obviously, the migration itself was you know epic because you know we've got 12 or 15 shows live, but then we've got a back catalogue of about another 12 or 15 shows sort of that we, you know, it's RIP and we wanted to make sure that they're safeguarded and carried across properly as well. There's a lot of working practices around how we you know book campaigns and get things live. So there's a lot of internal comms, project management. Yeah. Service level agreements, all of that kind of thing. It was a very complicated Q1 for us this year. And uh, <laughs> we, we managed to do it without too many hiccups and touching wood. But it's all gone well. And our partners there are so lovely. You know, anytime we've got an issue, we just drop them an email and they come straight back to us and they help out. The commercial team seems so enthusiastic about what we have as a publisher about history, but not just about history, but about all of our brands. The scale of our operation in the US is really attractive to them. And, mm. you know, we want to commercialize that more. So, yeah, a lot of the conversations we've been having have been really brilliant because it's all the things that we have wanted to achieve and that's what they want to achieve. And it's just sort of lined up. It's a very good partnership. Yeah, we're just really happy with it. Do you ever outsource to external production companies as well? Because I know that you must do a lot in-house in terms of editing and producing those shows, but you do also outsource stuff, right? Occasionally. I mean, to be honest, most of the stuff we do is in-house. So we've got a team of about six editors and some admin coordination stuff, but we are so lucky that you know you wouldn't be able to produce 35 shows a week with six editors normally. That would be an incredible amount. What we have got the benefit of is each individual editorial team, like Radio Times or History, has got an editorial lead who knows about history. I know nothing about history. They know about gardening. <laughs> I know a little bit about gardening. So we don't have to carry that. We step in as specialists and experts and we say, look, these are the 
podcasts in your space. Here are your main competitors. Here's the general do's and general don'ts. Make it this length. If you want it to be a comedy podcast, maybe do a round table with some people who know how to be funny. That's my first suggestion. It sounds basic, <laughs> but you'd be surprised. If you want to do an in-depth history podcast, do a one-on-one and talk, you know, really get into it and do it for longer, do it for 45 minutes or an hour. And it's just these sort of formatting things that someone from an editorial background knows how to do a print article, knows how to do a web article, knows how to maybe do video and do all these other things. When it comes to audio, we're just there to advise and steer and make sure that we're really hitting the audience with the content that they're going to relate to most in the way that they want it. The way I normally describe it is I say, we're the Samwise to their Frodo. So <laughs> they're really the star of the show. We're kind of there to carry the bags and cook the sausages. Mm-hmm. Of us. Nice. And that's blatant Samurajia and I will not stand for it. <laughs> <laughs> the emotional heart of that series. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take that. <laughs> So one thing that I wanted to touch on, you've spoken a little bit about the uh, commercial and partnership side of things, but I was curious as to whether or not expanding more into podcasts with some of the more heritage brands, do you find that that attracts a different kind of advertiser and a different kind of commercial partner than would otherwise be uh, interested in engaging with the brand as is? I think it does and it doesn't. Ooh. Oof. Mysterious answer ahead. <laughs> um, so I think there are naturally brands that are always going to want to be aligned with BBC titles and heritage brands. You know, things that are kind of regal in, in nature, things like the Royal Society of Chemistry are one of our clients. And people who are not specific to podcasting or digital media, so people like Disney, people like Now TV, Netflix, you know, they, they advertise everywhere. But I think what podcasting does is it does give digital publishers the opportunity to see a different kind of client that they maybe wouldn't see on print or wouldn't see in some of their other outputs. So, you know, podcasting is sort of if anyone said oh, a typical podcast sponsor, they'd say Squarespace or they'd say coffee or sort of, you know, supplements, that type of mm. thing. And that's often quite a funny conversation to have with publishers when they sort of don't realize that these clients are now in, all of a sudden interested in their heritage brands. You know, when you sort of say <laughs> there's like a supplement company trying to sell pepper and turmeric and they're thinking, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not normally our thing. Uh, and you go, well, it is now. And, you know, welcome to podcasts. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that can often be a funny conversation. But also it's brought in a lot of sponsors that then go on to spend money elsewhere in the brand because they realize actually, oh. you know, podcast was maybe the first thing they started with. Mm. Or maybe it was part of a package. You know, the first time that they came in as a client, they did a little bit of podcasting, a bit of social, a bit of web or whatever. But podcast was a main part of that package to begin with. And then they come back and then, you know, they sort of go, wow, actually, this is starting to have an impact. And the audience that is on this brand is exactly the audience we want. And the engagement from a podcast audience where they're listening for 45 minutes and they're getting a host endorsement or they're getting a producer endorsement is valuable. It is on the rating scale. They say it's one of the most trusted forms of advertising because there is an endorsement from a trusted intimate source, et cetera, et cetera. It's a lot harder from a KPI level or a CTR level to send people to specific places, even now with podcasting, that's a huge limitation we've got. You know, when people say, 
we're sponsored by this cruise company. Click this link now for 10% off on your next cruise. You know, not all podcast providers have got that technology where a link is going to magically pop up when the ad plays. And that's a huge limitation for a digital medium. You need to be able to have that two-click journey or that one-click journey, that immediate access. Podcasts still don't have that. Whereas if you're on a website or a social clip, you would. So there's a ways to go. There's other things that I hope are on the horizon and people are making strides towards that with their players and with their functionality. But yeah, overall, it's been an interesting journey to introduce old school publishers to new school advertisers. And it's, <laughs> you know, when it works, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing to watch. when I first started at PodPod or I think even before that I was having a conversation with somebody and they were saying every brand needs a podcast why doesn't every brand have a podcast and on the other end of the spectrum you have people going there are so many podcasts why does everything need to have a podcast nowadays where do you stand on that spectrum you know say do you think that every brand should have a podcast if it's done well obviously I'm not talking about rubbish for the sake of it podcasts but do you think that actually the potential is there for every brand to have a podcast Uh, i was thinking of a clever way to say this but in all honesty no (laughs) blunt is good (laughs) yeah blunt is good i don't think every brand does need a podcast because you're right it's an oversaturated medium you know if 10 years ago it was the you know the new frontier Mm. it is very much the old frontier at this point it is completely saturated if you're not going to do something that is best in class then you're not going to be able to cut through the noise so i take your point Rihanna, about you know it's not for the sake of it but that's what people are doing people are doing for the sake of it product Mm. and I think often publishers are getting those directives from, you know, from a, a corporate standpoint. You know, mm. we need to do X, Y, Z. We need to hit certain criteria, you know, monthly turnaround. And, and, and. We're that thinking about the heart of what podcast really began from, which was sort of this pirate radio online. You know, it was about mm. being able to say things you couldn't say on radio. It's about mm. being, if you want to do a three-hour show, you can do it and you don't have to play music or have adverts. You can just hang out and have a chat with your mates. I think that soul of where podcasts began 10, 15, even longer ago at this point, years ago, is still there and people still associate that with why they like podcasting and why it's valuable to them because it feels a little bit more rock and roll or independent in a lot of ways. But I think a lot of publishers don't understand podcasting when they get into it. I think a lot of people don't think, well, should we get some radio talent who know how to present and know how to bring this thing to life? Shall we create a format that can stand on its own, regardless who's the main host? You know, I'd love a good format. That's the thing that I always say is, is that a good podcast is similar to a good sort of afternoon game show. You know, there's a reason why mm. some afternoon game shows are better than others. You know, when you boil it down, it's a presenter, it's a contestant, there's a cash prize, and there's some sort of game you've got to play in the middle. But there's a reason, and I'm going to upset a lot of people here, there's a reason why the chase is better than tipping point. Ooh. <laughs> right. I'm going to wait for the comments to come flooding in and tell me I'm wrong. But I've got friends who've written for both. So this there is interesting. There we go. So tell one of them they're nailing it. But, uh, <laughs> He's left. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's, 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 that's how I often describe podcasts to people is it's, it's not just you're really brilliant sit here for 30 minutes think about the format think about the mechanism and think about the attitude and the vibe and how do you want people to feel at the end of it 
So if publishers aren't willing to do that and aren't willing to realize that they're up against some pretty strong company in the space and they're going to need to outclass, outlast and be consistent at that level for potentially two or three years before they really become synonymous with the top of their category, then there's no point doing it. It's not It's not a one quarter punt. You mm. really have to stay in the game mm. for years at this point before you're going to be able to hold any kind of market share. Mm. So with that in mind then, are there any other brands that you would like to launch podcasts for or that indeed you're planning to launch podcasts for that you haven't had the chance to yet? Oof, here's the chance for me to get into trouble. Um, (laughs) Well, I don't think I'll be giving too much away, but there's definitely, I don't know about specific brands at this point, but there's definitely specific content areas that we're really interested in. For me personally, I have made this known. It's no secret. I really want to do a piece of work in the children's audio space. I think for a number of our brands, it's a natural place to go, not just for children, but for parents and for families. We've got heritage brands. We've got compelling stories. We've already got magazines like History Revealed that tailor to a slightly more basic audience. I wouldn't say a children's audience, but audiences who just don't want the heavy academia that comes with a lot of history. They just want the stories and the emotion and the characters, things like that that are already half in play could easily lend themselves to children's audio. And that's something I want to experiment with, not necessarily for one specific brand, but as a, as a, as a more wider attempt into the space. I think entertainment, video games, tech, it's a compelling area that we haven't typically done a lot in. And that could be really appealing for a number of reasons. One, because we know the audience are in that space. And two, because we know it's a very commercially exciting area as well. So those are other areas we're looking at. But I, I wouldn't say, you know, we're going to have some sort of good food, video game, monstrosity <laughs> in the airwaves anytime soon. We'll go into the lab and work out a cool format and, and hopefully get some good ideas together before we do any of this stuff. Ben, thank you so much for joining us on PodPod. That was very illuminating. Guys, thank you so much. So Reem, what did you make of Ben Ewart talking all about publisher podcasts and its network? I thought it was really interesting to learn about publisher podcast considering we are technically a publisher podcast yeah it was quite interesting hearing it echoed back wasn't it yeah (laughs) and it was funny like right before the actual recording started because we were talking about the fact that we're in the same category for one of the awards and he's like well what's your podcast and we're like this one one. (laughs) (laughs) but no I, I thought it was really interesting I think he was very candid about the fact that not every publisher needs to have a podcast Mm. for the sake of it, even though there's many publishers or even just people who are getting into podcasting that think it's so easy to just make one. Mm. And it's just worth having the same way that you would have like a Twitter account for your brand. Just have like a podcast as an extension of it. But actually you do need to have something with an idea, with a proper idea, Mm. with a proper message, Mm. something that reflects your brand. And you need to put in the effort to make it otherwise it's kind of just a waste of time because you're not actually making anything valuable for your brand so i like the fact that he was very candid about that and not just like yeah yeah everyone everyone should have one (laughs) (laughs) yeah i like that idea of always coming back to the why why are you making this Mm. what is the point how is it going to further your brand is it or is it a vanity project i suppose in so many words right adam what about you yeah much like you guys i found it very interesting hearing about what Immediate as a publisher is doing on a strategic level, because Immediate has really been 
quite ahead of the curve compared to a lot of publishers. They've invested really heavily in making their podcasts a core pillar of the business in ways that a lot of magazine publishers, certainly in the UK, just haven't. What was particularly interesting, I thought, was hearing about how they approach audience growth and really looking at that engaged audience, not necessarily the largest Mm. audience, but making sure that they build real connections with listeners. Because it's very easy, particularly in publishing, to focus on just maximizing the the size of the audience and going for the biggest numbers that you can. But really, the value is in getting listeners that will, and readers in general, and audience members in general, that are prepared to to back your brand and to to engage with it, you know, whether that's coming to events or buying subscriptions or whatever. And yeah, it's it's rare to find publishers that are prepared to put that focus on it. Yeah, I was kind of thinking about, I meant to ask really, about the motivations of publisher podcasts, the ones that he works with, and whether they're all the same. Is it to kind of up consumers of the original product? Or, you know, what is the sort of end game, really? Do you think that mm. was sort of answered anyway in the conversation? Yeah, I think so. Because one of the other interesting things that he mentioned was about advertisers coming into the podcast that wouldn't have interacted with the, you know, the other brand channels, whether that's, you know, the print titles or the websites or whatever, but then also buying into the wider brand after being introduced to it by a podcast. And I suspect that that's probably the same for readers as well. Podcast audiences aren't always the same as print audiences. You know, you will get some people that only engage with one channel. And, you know, indeed, Ben made a similar point about people consuming TikTok clips and Instagram reels and stuff like that versus listening to a whole podcast. But there is going to be some portion of that audience that is crossover and does move from one channel to the other. I agree with Adam about the point of of audiences, you know, moving from one to the other and the fact that sometimes they're not the same audience that you have for a podcast as you do for for print. And I think really good examples of that is when we've we've had them on before, like Empire, Mm -hmm. you know, like with the Empire Film Podcast, they have their podcast audience and they also have their their print, their magazine audience. We also have like Tortoise Media that just went completely audio first or not completely, but Mm -hmm. they've made the transition to be mostly audio first. Yeah, is it like 90% audio mm-hmm. or something now, Tortoise? Yeah. And they had like like Sweet Bobby, I think, was one of their best podcasts. Mm-hmm. And that, that just gave them a whole new wave of followers and subscribers and audiences. So I think it's really interesting the way that that can work sometimes and how it can really just transform a brand and just introduce you to a whole new set of audiences. Well, as you can hear, Reem is very knowledgeable about all of this and it's because she's written so much on it and you can find all of her articles and more at podpod.com. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you for joining me and thank you all for listening. And of course, thank you to Ben Hewitt for being our interviewee this week. Do sign up to our daily email bulletins so you don't miss 
anything, any news in the podcast world and do rate and subscribe us as well. It would just be lovely to read some of your comments. The podcast is produced by Emma Corsham for Haymarket Business Media and I'm your host, Rihanna Dillon, and I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.